There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia swathed through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, a podcast on the Climactic Collective, a group of independent podcasters from across the range of the climate communities of Australia and New Zealand. Every week on Climactic, rain or shine, we either produce or feature an episode of a climate-engaged podcast. This could be from one of the shows on the Climactic Collective or beyond, and you'll always find a link to the show we're featuring at the top of the show notes. My name is Mark, and I'm the publisher of the Climactic Collective and of this show. And if you ever have any questions, I'm always reachable at hello at climactic.fm. I'm in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, New Zealand, Aotearoa and I pay my respects to the iwi of Tamaki Makoto and acknowledge their shared sovereignty over this land as enshrined in Tetsuriti, the Treaty of Waitangi. This weekend, I was able to meet up with some new family members. And as something to bond over, we played a classic go-to for drama classes and campfire gatherings worldwide. Werewolf, also known as Mafia. Because what better way to get to know people than through social reasoning, game theory, murder, and lying? It was great fun. And it illustrated to me, hugely, the power of games for fostering connection, having conversation, and engaging with people. It reminded me hugely of this episode of Talking in This Climate that you're about to hear. Because finding ways to engage with the climate crisis and our changing world through games is a productive and enjoyable experience. And couldn't we all use a little positivity and fun right now? Thanks so much to Tim Shu and the team behind Talking in This Climate. The show is currently on hiatus with no immediate plans for return. So if you like this episode, just drop a note to hello at climactic.fm, and I'll be sure to let them know. Enjoy. Welcome to Talking in This Climate a series where we discuss the different aspects of talking about climate change and environmental issues. We're a mix of environment students, graduates, and environmental communication professionals who are really interested in how we talk about climate in this climate. Each episode, we'll dive into a different theme, looking at things like language, the media, communicating through frames and metaphors, Indigenous perspectives on environmental issues, communicating across disciplines, issues of trust and misinformation, emotion, and how we can ultimately strive to become more mindful listeners, communicators, and agents of change. We're so excited for this journey and so grateful that you're here traveling with us. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to episode 12 of Talking in This Climate. In this episode, we will be talking about play and how it can be designed to provoke productive conversations and communicating about climate. My name is Tim, and I am here with the whole podcast team tonight. Uh, so say hello, everyone. We have Emily. 
Hi, everyone. We've got Ewan. Hi. We also have Fani with us. Hello, everyone. And Rosie. Hey, yeah. And Zoe. Hi, everyone. And we are also incredibly lucky and very excited to also have a very special guest with us today. We have Harry Lee. So welcome, Harry, and thank you very much for joining us for this episode on Play. Say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. The honor is absolutely ours. So just for the listeners, um, I actually came across Harry through his work earlier this year, and it was specifically through one of the games that he has co-designed, and the game is called Convergence. And I'm sure we'll have the link to the game in the show notes, so check it out if you haven't already. But at the time when I was trying to book a book a ticket uh, for this event, unfortunately, they'd all sold out. But luckily for me, I ended up actually meeting Harry in person when he was facilitating a game of Convergence in person through uh, like a playthrough um, through a sustainability leadership program at the University of Melbourne. Uh, so I was, yeah, totally stoked and very lucky to have been at the right place at the right time to experience that game. So for everyone listening and you're wondering what is Convergence? So Convergence is a game about climate emergency where you build and you destroy and reimagine a city together. And it's described as a hybrid web and tabletop experience that combines systems thinking, speculative storytelling and deep time reflection to interrogate our values, the ones that lead to catastrophe, and the ones that are critical for survival. And it was written in collaboration with Noongar researcher Cass Lynch and based on investigations and interviews with dozens of experts. Convergence is a playable provocation that explores our collective course towards collapse and what comes after. So that's a little bit about the game but Harry, we're also quite keen to learn a bit more about you. Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? For sure. Uh, so my name is Harry Li Shanglun. I use he, him pronouns. And I'm currently in Singapore doing an MBA at INSEAD. My background is quite diverse. Um, I studied medicine out of high school and then did a little bit of commerce, um, but ended up without a bachelor's degree at all. I uh, started a game studio that makes interactive art, bold experiences that are interactive and, and unique, that try to tackle big, wicked problems in society, everything from climate change to surveillance capitalism. And during this time, I was also a university lecturer, and I was invited to design and teach a subject at Melbourne University uh, through VCA called Games and Playfulness, which I originally wanted to call Playing With Yourself, but they rejected that title for some reason. Oh, no. Why? Yeah, unclear. <laughs> so that was really great. And uh, now I'm doing a very different thing, uh, an MBA, learning about business and capital and trying in my own way to understand the systems of society, uh, which I think is the through line uh, in my professional career, trying to understand these intersecting systems and how we can shift them or improve them uh, so that they're more equitable and just. In terms of where I grew up from and my family background, my parents are Chinese-Malaysian, and I was born on the lands of the Wurundjeri people in Melbourne, and also spent a little bit of time in my childhood in Jakarta, Indonesia. And Emily and I were just pre-show talking about some of the shared experiences there, potentially. 
and yeah, it's it's been a really lovely life. So all culminating in this moment of appearing on this podcast. <laughs> well, we're very glad that it worked out this way. I also noticed that uh, or recognized that a lot of us are calling in from lots of different places tonight. We're, we're recording in the evening Melbourne time. So I would just like to acknowledge on behalf of those also in this country that I'm calling in from Wurundjeri Woiwurrung country in Richmond in Victoria and pay my respects to all Indigenous tribes and their elders from all nations and uh, as well to Torres Strait Islander peoples and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. And if anyone else uh, calling in from a different country would like to pay their respects as well, you're welcome to now. I'm calling from Gadigal land in Redfern uh, here in Sydney, um, which I'd love to acknowledge as well. All of the elders past, present and emerging here. I just had it up to say that I was calling from Bunurong because um, Fani had very kindly shared with us that article to show the tribes have kind of changed in the inner Melbourne. And so they have um, in the past anyway for starting to used to be three different tribes, but now it's... Um, just the one. All right. Thank you, everyone. Um, so, Harry, before we jump into some of the you know, more complex questions, let's say, I wanted to start off just by asking you uh, what motivated you to design Convergence in the first place? Where did it come from? So Convergence is a project that's part of a larger project, and that larger project is called Refuge. Refuge is a five, actually now six-year uh, interdisciplinary project that explores preparedness in uh, climate disasters uh, through a very specific lens of under asking the question, what role does the artist play in preparing and responding to these disasters? So it kind of says, okay, you know, we're, we're past the climate debate, obviously, and we know that we're going to be facing an increased incidence rate and severity of these disasters, and it's going to start impacting our communities in a very close-to-home way. And when we start to think about that, it's very difficult to, to think about solutions that aren't just... I mean, it's very important to think about policy, and it's very important to think about emergency management. But the question becomes, what creative approaches aren't yet been thought of? Or what creative approaches are possible? And what role does the arts have in imagining and shaping those futures? Not just the futures of how we respond to the disasters, but the futures of how we respond and rebuild after them. So COVID-19 becomes a perfect example of this, right? It's a, a disaster that everyone is currently experiencing the effects of. And the question is, you know, could artists imagine the effects of something like a global pandemic and actually forge a pathway out of it? and practice the values that will bring us out of this disaster. That was the, the thesis statement. So the, the format of Refuge is it's a project by Arts House, which is an initiative and, and institution that is a part of the city of Melbourne, and I think has great programming, um, lots of focus on sustainability practices and First Nations artists. So definitely go check out Arts House. They set five years to explore the question each year of how could we as artists imagine a hypothetical disaster and what would happen and how it would affect the community and then let artists respond to it. So it started back in 2016 with the theme of floods and asked what would happen if Melbourne experienced massive flooding, you know, the one in 1,000 year floods. 
And then in 2017 asked, well, how about heat waves? You know, who's the most vulnerable in a heat wave? What are the conditions that create a heat wave? Are we going to see more of these? And what do we do when we need to set up an emergency relief center? Arts House itself, the building, which is located in the um, North Melbourne Town Hall, it's a beautiful historic building, uh, is an emergency relief center. If there were an emergency, it would become a center for people to seek shelter and refuge. So that was another impetus for the larger project. And then in 2018, we looked at pandemics and wondered what would happen if there were an outbreak of infectious disease. So you can already tell, you know, <laughs> that there's a real prescience to this project. That in 2016, we looked at floods. And then in 2018, two years later, Melbourne experienced a bunch of really bad floods. Uh, in 2017, we looked at heat waves. And then obviously, there were the bushfires and the associated heat waves that hit not just Melbourne, but many, many places in Australia. And in 2018, we looked at pandemics. And lo and behold, we are <laughs> well and truly in the midst of one. So uh, I don't want to say that we are um, the problem, but maybe we are the problem. Maybe we're creating all of these disasters. Don't know whether anyone's thought of that yet. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think there is something to be said about the fact that uh, it's managed to kind of perfectly predict. It's not because um, of any magical crystal ball. It's because we are very well connected with um, the experts. And when I talk about experts, uh, I don't just mean the experts in the sense of scientific disciplines that are examining these problems, although they are very important. We're also talking about experts in every domain that relates to survival and continual, uh, how do I put this? We're looking at experts in every domain that relates to resilience uh, in the face of disaster, climate disaster. So that means First Nations elders. That means disability activists. Uh, that means community leaders, you know, who are, are doing grassroots uh, efforts. And I think that that more holistic approach is part of the heart of refuge, that it is community engaged, that it is drawing together all of these disparate knowledges and synthesizing them through an artistic and creative lens. Why artistic? Because it is the artist's role to see the world as it truly is and how it could be and connect the two. So I think that that is the strength of refuge, that it brings together all of these different people and uses the artistic lens and the creative lens. And then why convergence? Well, convergence came out of another work that I had done in 2018 called Mapping the Pandemic, which was kind of this like interactive game lecture drawing from my years in, uh, <laughs> studying medicine and loving slash hating epidemiology classes. And now everyone's an epidemiologist in the comfort of their own home. So that's a good thing that I spend a whole year doing the math. Um, and then uh, trying to translate some of the ideas of what would happen in a pandemic to a general public and using games to make it more accessible, more relevant, and really get people to generate answers and hypothesize themselves what would happen. Because that there's so much knowledge embedded in people. And the question of how do you get that knowledge to arise in a community and get people talking about it, uh, I think is one of the functions of art uh, and indeed possibly of human existence, right? That this kind of Heideggerian um, extension of horizon, or you could look at it as a, as a dialectic of thesis and antithesis. But the point is that, the, you know, convergence as many other good art pieces, <laughs> I say, uh, does this thing of getting people to talk about knowledge that is actually uh, secret knowledge and communal knowledge and places it in the context of everyone else's secret knowledge and communal knowledge. And that's a learning opportunity. That's where you can actually change people's minds 
That's important, right? Because changing people's minds is hard. Changing people's minds through facts is really difficult. Being able to get to that space where people are sharing knowledge with each other and actually being receptive and actually having their, their world being shifted just a little bit, um, that's, to me, something very valuable, and I wanted to pursue it. So Mapping the Pandemic, which was this interactive lecture that came out of a residency at the Doherty Institute of Infection and Immunity, I think is the name of the institution. They're the main epidemiology institution in the Southern Hemisphere, basically. It was a work that tried to make things really clear. And then Convergence started off as that, where I said, how can I make all climate change-related disasters really clear? And then I realized that's impossible. I don't have to address the entirety of a solution. I can cut through it and ask, what are the underlying values? And rather than make it, just making it clear what is happening, because I think what's actually going on this is a, a little pet thesis of mine, is that people know what's going on, right? People, people are inundated with the reality of what's going on, and we're feeling the climate anxiety, and we're feeling hopeless and nihilistic about it. So it's not giving people information that is key here, right? It's giving people the tools to deal with the power imbalances and the hopelessness and the question of what do we do now and what do we actually, how, where do we go? If anything, I would think we need to cut through the noise and the only way to cut through noise, I think, in, in a local context of so-called Australia, is to ground it, is to ground it in the sense of connection. So if I were to quickly summarize the point of convergence, it is to say that the systems that have led us into this mess disconnect us. That's the effect of capitalism and exploitation, right? That it disconnects us from each other and from the land and from culture and from communities. And that disconnecting force is what's leading to the climate anxiety as well, because now we know what's going on and we can't do anything about it. So the solution, in contrast, the cure has to be connection. And in my case, it was connection through storytelling and play. It was connection by pointing to people who are connected to land and country, people who are connected to culture. And if I can reconnect people through play, then I think that I've performed something valuable. Uh, that contributed something valuable to the discussion. So sorry for the long-winded explanation, but that's convergence. Can I just say how much I love listening? <laughs> <laughs> I know everyone else is just here. Yes, yes, yes. I was like, if this was an Instagram live, it would just be like love that, love that, love that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm also highly aware that I don't talk in sound bites, so like it's very bad. <laughs> I need to become more music. We're not here for sound bites. There's no clickbait here. It's all right. <laughs> but I I love that when you everything that you were talking through, I'm like, this is the sound bite. Tapping into the tacit, <laughs> those tacit knowledges that we have no idea about, and particularly in these remote settings, we feel quite disconnected from, which really heightens that anxiety. But having these ways to tap into not only our own tacit knowledge, but others, that's it's beautiful. It's good, right? And there's such, a res there's such a resonance when you find people that you go like, yeah, this is, this is something worthwhile being generated here, mm -hmm. um, coming mm -hmm. from the, the confluence of all of our knowledges and approaches. That really resonated with me too, like when you were talking about our secret knowledge and then the communal knowledge. I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I think sometimes these days when we have conversations, there is this fixation on I want to be right or I want to convince you and being able to just think idly and not be afraid that maybe what you've said, you know, needs a bit of work or something like it. 
I feel like as we get older and older, you're meant to do less of that out loud. And so you either get really quiet or it gets very tricky to, I guess, formulate what you think about things with other, in the presence of other people. So it's really beautiful to hear that. I think you have identified, yeah, the trend of society to um, the, the loudest people are polarizing. Uh, and then people who want the more nuanced conversations are finding it harder to find psychologically safe spaces to do that with, or people with whom they can do that with, and then don't voice the, the, the nuanced discussions inside their own heads. You know, at the moment, the course that I'm doing at INSEAD is highly international. And so I've been privy to lots of conversations with students from Hong Kong and mainland China, or who are very Zionist and pro-Israel, uh, and then others who are like from Syria and uh, are pointing out the settler colonialism that's occurring in Palestine. And so there's lots of very emotional weight to those conversations, and they're very difficult conversations to have. But what I've been overall uh, very excited and impressed by is that there can be meaningful discourse here, even when that disagreement is so fundamental in values, mm. dissonance, and agreement, potentially, uh, when you think about the outside world, without it being a centrist paving over of people's individual perspectives, right? Like, it doesn't just end up being, oh, therefore, we'll meet in the middle. Um, but neither is it just, I'm not going to listen to you. So it feels like a, a very helpful and productive model to create spaces where we can actually voice things that we're unsure about or things that are very contentious and really just sit down and without judgment discuss them because it's very unlike the optics of the internet, right? You don't have to <laughs> worry about all the people listening in like this podcast. Um, <laughs> you, you are just there to engage with somebody. And then the question for me at least becomes, how do I love someone whose values fundamentally differ? And play can be a way to do that as well. So, mm. Gosh, there's so much to unpack there. And I, I just, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to have time to do it just in this episode, but I'm sure our conversations will continue after this episode. So, uh, yes, I think there are some really key things that uh, flow so well into why we put this podcast together. And I think it's quite amazing that you and I, Harry, we actually met in the new University of Melbourne building called Connect. And it was through playing your game, to be honest, and a recent thinking and reflection that I've uh, come to this understanding that there is so much isolation and disconnectedness, which is um, I'm becoming to understand more and more uh, at, the, at the root cause of many, many issues. And this is something that uh, me personally and I think us as a group have learned over the course of the last 11 or 12 episodes of this podcast journey. One quick question for you before we do jump into um, some other questions, and I, I will throw to Fani for the first question when we get there. But um, I was curious to, to wonder what is your favorite game that you've been playing during lockdown, or if you have time to play games at the moment? Is there is there something that you've been turning to to get you through? <laughs> um, I've been playing lots in lockdown, but maybe they're not the kind of game that people think of. So my favorite game to play is um, mask counting. So you just, uh, you can, every time there's a mask on the ground that's been discovered, <laughs> and you mentally note that you've seen a mask on the ground. And then, you know, if you're feeling particularly generous, you pick it up because littering is not very aesthetically pleasing to our city. But 
uh, that's not, I think, the kind of game that you're talking about, but that is the game that I've been playing the most in, in Pandemic. And once you start seeing them, it's impossible to ignore, and then you'll be pointing out masks everywhere. Mm. Well, that's, that's a game that we can all play now. Yeah. Starting, starting tomorrow. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, I will, I will hand over to Fani, who has the first question. Hey, Harry, uh, thanks so much for sharing all your interesting insights. It was really fun. And I really wanted to ask you this question when I played Convergence. So given the confronting and engaging experience that I had while playing the game, and also some people might have while playing a game like Convergence, what do you think might be the role of games or play in general to communicate and connect the broader public with issues such as climate change? Yeah, great, great question. I, can I ask you first, actually, uh, what was your experience playing the game? I'm so curious to know, obviously, as the designer, but you know, I'm, I'm really interested to know what the impetus for the question was. So mainly, I would say, so when given a choice between would you stay or leave Melbourne when, when a flood is cascading on you, I thought based on my own value system and my own beliefs that if I'm in any way partly responsible for the problem, I should be one who should be facing the impact and not running away for security. So it was in a way confronting for me to make that choice. But yeah, I don't know if I made that decision because I was playing in a game or would I make that decision in real life? But yeah, that those were some of the sort of experiences that I had. That's um, really gratifying to hear people. So the, the game is split into three sections. The first section, you very mechanically build a city, and it's kind of this metaphor or parable um, of what happens when you have unchecked capitalism. And then the second section is you're making choices between what happens in a future timeline. So it kind of speculates uh, forward and then shows you a deep timeline uh, going backwards to try to contextualize the time, the, the scale of time that we're thinking about. And then section three is more imaginative and, and tries you to get you to imagine what futures we want to see. Um, so funny, this second section is, is really fascinating to me because over and over again, players tell me that they were really confronted by the choices and that their groups had disagreement or that they themselves found something new about their own value system when they were presented with a choice. And from the game side, you know, mostly when you have narrative games, you're kind of asking the player to decide what outcome they want. Is it to experience, you know, being someone else where you're almost role-playing or the opportunity to pretend something else happens just to see the outcome? But I wanted to strip a little bit of that away in this version and get people to discuss what they would actually do, even with the ambiguity of the choices. And so I tried to keep the narrative payoff actually relatively low uh, as a purposeful design choice. So it's not really making huge um, differences in the outcome of a story or anything like that. Um, and that decreases the likelihood that someone role plays just for the sake of saying, this is what I think, you know, I, the character that I am being in the game is and kind of connects it more to your personal values. That being said, all games are, I guess, like an opportunity to be someone else. Right. Uh, even even games without aspects of role playing, like chess, um, can sometimes secretly sneak up on you. All games are, are actually engines for meta games in that sense. And I think the value of play, to answer the original question, is that we get to experiment and test out some of these ideas without actual consequences. 
and it presents you hypothetical worlds, right, or scenarios that basically give you uh, new possibilities of expression and new possibilities of testing out your values and ideas uh, inside of a system that isn't real. Because it's not real, you might say, oh, that doesn't matter. But the magical, wonderful thing about games is it absolutely does matter, right? It's, it, it has this reflective uh, quality to it where the choices that you make in a game may not reflect you directly. If you play a violent game, I'm not saying that you're a violent individual, right? That's not the kind of connection that I'm looking for. Rather, that the game becomes an opportunity for us to try out new different values or for us to practice the values that we already have. So, you know, you might choose something very different from yourself just to see in this environment what that would lead to and what kind of consequences that might have. In games with avatar creation, a lot of people choose to be an avatar of a different gender uh, than, than they are or that they present with in, in life. And that's not the same as uh, gender identity in the real world, and yet it is also a playful expression and exploration of gender. So it is worthwhile. Um, and that's the kind of nuanced value of games that I see, right? Games can't solve the problem. You know, I, I'm very skeptical of gamification experts. I'm very skeptical of people who say that games are the solution to all of these complex things, particularly for any game approaching things like climate change. It's like, no, that's too big. You know, like you can't, anything that you try will be reductionist in nature. So none of those ideas. Uh, it's much more just like, can we very slowly shift people's perspective just by giving them the opportunity to talk and think about it more openly. And in that sense, at the end of the day, the entire game is a trick. Convergence is a bit of a trick. It's all it's asking you to do is come together with your friends and have a discussion about climate change. And it does so by promising you, like, and it'll be fun. So in one sense, I'm very cognizant of this trick that it's playing. And then in the other, I think it does do that effectively because you can have an engaging, led conversation that is guided around climate change um, that, that doesn't feel like it's getting stuck. Because a lot of our conversations about climate change, when they're left to our own devices, we end up in agreement and we get stuck. So having constant provocations to un unstick us or to complicate or to lead our thoughts and ask, well, what do you think about cryptocurrency? And what do you think about planned cities? And what do you think about this and this and this? Um, I think is the value of the game. Really, really interesting insights. Thanks for sharing that. And I think what, what's particularly interesting and revealing from a designer's perspective, Harry, in that response is the intentionality of what you how you design a game and what you may intend for people to get out of it, even if they don't realize it. That's maybe part of the trick that you described. And I think it um, flows pretty nicely into the next question that we've got here. And I'll, I'll throw over to Rosie for this because um, yeah, it's a question about things that maybe designers didn't anticipate. Yeah, Harry, um, your answer then couldn't flow more perfectly to the question I had in mind um, because I had played Convergence with Arnie and Tim and then spent the afternoon being like, oh my gosh, if people that I work with about climate change and I don't agree on things, who am I actually going to end up with <laughs> um, at the end? And like, I, yeah, so there was a lot that I really wondered about. So I wonder if that was your experience with you too. Like, did you learn unexpected things about your friends or your family when you were play testing this? And as a consequence, have you found that debriefing is a necessary post-game aspect to it so that people come away you know who might have been a bit distressed or have come away a bit confused have like a safe kind of like discussion even post the discussion about climate change so 
Rosie, um, you played with Fani and Tim and uh, differences of opinions arose in different things. Is that what happened? Yeah, I assumed as a whole group that we would be anti going to um, Mars. I just thought that would be a quick, a really quick answer. And I think there are a few other like technological solutions that I just assumed everyone would be like, definitely not. But they were the ones that we ended up talking about more. And I was like, wow, I did not know that. <laughs> that being said, Fanny's response about staying in Melbourne was extremely compelling and completely convinced me as well. So there were things where I learned new things and approaches that have changed me, actually, and then other things where it was surprising. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's, um, I really appreciate hearing from players who say, actually, this did change me. Because as the designer, the process of making this game absolutely changed me. It transformed the way that I think about climate emergency on a very fundamental level. Moving it away from this axis of, of hopelessness and hopefulness and kind of just seeing a much larger picture, right? That is, I think it has to be led by First Nations people uh, and, and it has to really be connected to community cultures, to country. It has to be determined of what to do. And I think that that's a very, uh, how to put it, I had always thought about climate change as a problem to be solved. And now I think about climate change as another part of the long story of humanity that we will survive. And the question is just how, in what way will we be changed? And therefore it becomes, you know, this, this, this open space. And within that open space, there is determination. There's no hope or hopelessness. There's no optimism, pessimism. It's just determination to do the, to do the work. Anyway, um, yeah, gratifying to hear that you had those conversations. Definitely within playtests and within the run-throughs that I've attended, there are always, I think, a, a huge range of opinions. Never does a group completely agree on everything. And so the game is purposely designed to, to bring those uh, differences out. I've seen groups you know, fall apart over whether they should have police in their imagined community. Like what role does <laughs> um, state-run uh, enforcement have? I've seen groups really, really have to like go through, well, do we need money? Is money necessary for, <laughs> for our community? Um, what do, what is society where wealth and money are separated look like? How do we actually functionally destroy the aspects of capitalism that lead to inequality? All these kind of conversations. So in one sense, that's exactly the design intention. And then the question becomes, how do you hold those things in a way that isn't psychologically damaging? And <laughs> do you need to debrief afterwards? And unfortunately, I can't ship a therapist uh, or a counselor with every copy of the game. Or, you know. So I'm kind of relying on the fact that you're likely playing with a group of people that you respect and trust in order to have those conversations in the first place. And the notion that you and your friends are pretty similar. When you go, you know, it's easy to forget, but when we talk to the public, the public is very, very diverse and, and wild. And on a global scale, that is particularly true. But when you're playing this game, you're playing with people who are very similar to you. So I'm almost leveraging the effect of narcissism of small difference in order to get people to really interrogate themselves. You know, I'm almost purposely causing rifts amongst friendship. I mean, maybe that's a bad thing to admit to. And then the, the, the next bit of... Um, so yes, I saw, saw it all the time in playtests. And then how did that resolve is the next question. And is, does it, is it something that always has to be resolved? I think 
Art should absolutely have the power to disturb us as well as comfort us, as the old quote goes, right? I don't know who you are. But it also should have room for unresolved tensions and paradoxes and frictions, particularly because I believe at the heart of it, frictions are often the reason why we end up caring about these things in the first place. When I think back on the frictions of my life and the contradictions of myself, of my identities, of living in an Australia that is still very racist, for example, um, or, or thinking through the relationship of sexuality and faith, you know, any number of frictions that I experience, it has driven me to be more aware and more resilient and more, and, and to hold that multiplicity is a wonderful skill that we're going to be more of. So I don't think that the game's job necessarily has to be to resolve it. In fact, it is a problematizing space. And if people leave with unresolved tensions, my hope is that that pushes them to, to spend more energy and more time reflecting on those tensions. And ideally that, that pushes them towards action because that's what the game tries to do. It, if a lot of activism is like, let's get the action going because we assume these values um, which is absolutely necessary, and activism is always multi-layered. This game and many other artworks look at the, at the values, the fundamental values, and it assumes that if you get the values right, then you'll start to want to practice those values. And if you can get people to practice the values little by little bit, then the actions will start to follow. And you need both, obviously, top down, bottom up. Um, but that's where where this piece uh, exists, I guess. I hope that answers your question. Mm, yeah, it's. That's a really big one to think about too, because so often games of this nature would be more combative, so like diplomacy or risk, where the end, I suppose, reflection is I demolished you or I beat you. Um, and that's probably where the friction of this one lies, hey, about maintaining and like what you say, like having that multitude or multiplicity with that like contradiction sometimes and being comfortable knowing that's how you're going to move ahead. I think that's a fascinating comparison to Risk or like any other competitive game, right? Because um, I've mentioned the three-part structure of the game before. It very purposely moves from traditional board game mechanics. Uh, so the first section asks you to build a city by placing pieces into a grid. And it's very, if you want to put it as like, you know, it's, it's mechanical. It's, it's very rules-based and you're trying to optimize a score. And... This was actually a result of me thinking about how do you represent mechanically, metaphorically, issues of climate change and issues of capitalism uh, in a really simple way, in a simple, easy to understand way, where doing it kind of reveals aspects of the system. So I was like, oh, if you try to maximize points, what happens when you do this and this and this? And then it moves into the second part, which is more narrative-based, right? It's kind of these choices, and you start to move into a different space. And then finally, it goes completely off the rails. Like, no longer are we playing a board game. We're kind of playing... Uh, a role-playing game, right? We're just talking to each other and imagining. And I drew heavy, heavy influence from um, a wonderful tabletop role-playing game called The Quiet Year, which asks people to imagine a community uh, that has a, a year uh, of, of struggle and, and intra-community dynamics. And it's a beautiful, beautiful piece that you should check out. But yeah, I, I guess I wanted to take these these easy to learn frameworks that went from the mechanical through to the narrative through to the um, speculative, trying to draw people from like very clear and obvious rules to a space where there are no rules and you can do anything. 
Uh, and that itself creates its own tensions because some people really want rules and some people are uncomfortable with the discussion base. And because it's like most games do one or the other. It, it does it very rarely or if ever do you get a game that kind of has this arc that also teaches the rules as you go. So there were a lot of design challenges and opportunities there. Um, and I feel like there's a whole new space that I'm excited for of games that don't require you to like know the rules beforehand and get to play with the, these more experimental ideas. So just as a small uh, plug, I guess, I'm working on a game now with David Finnegan, who is part of Boho Interactive. And David does a lot of work to um, elucidate and, and communicate scientific principles like system design thinking through art and games. So definitely check out his work as well and Boho's work. They did one called Best Festival Ever, which you design a festival with your friends and in doing so learn about system science, uh, which is really cool. And we're working together on um, a climate bank lending game, which is actually a multi like iterated prisoner's dilemma, which I'm really excited about. So yeah, I think there's, there's more, there's space for more of these kind of games into the future. And uh, hopefully it'll be another tool for us to keep exploring these issues and communicating these issues, talking in this climate. Well, I think there'd be a lot of demand from, from us and our community. Absolutely. So uh, keep us posted, Harry, with all the, the new releases. I think one of the interesting uh, aspects of play and the games that you were talking about is how it encourages curiosity and how it encourages us to question our assumptions, thinking about um, Rosie's reflections as well. And I think another way that that sort of happens in life is talking with kids and, and younger people who, who don't have the same uh, burden of assumptions that you know older people tend to have. And um, I think that sets the context a little bit for the next question. So I'll throw that over to Ewan for this one. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. I was I was thinking while you're talking that we give children a lot more freedom to have these spaces to explore ideas through play and to to be creative and to to explore important ideas different spaces than we allow ourselves as adults to explore those ideas or or to behave, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Many people assume that games are just for kids and make negative judgments on adults who game. Have you experienced that sort of feedback and how do we challenge those assumptions? Yeah, absolutely. This is something that I struggle with all the time, right? Because children are allowed to play. And indeed, that is one of the central development functions of, of being a kid. And you can look at Piaget and a bunch of other people who talk about the importance of play in, in socializing and, and learning. And then suddenly you're an adult and your avenues for play dwindle dramatically, right? You get industrialization of the video games industry. So now you play through commercial products or you get like we play with alcohol and that's when it's susceptible to let loose a little bit in certain cultures. And, and play is suddenly defined as the opposite of work. So work and play becoming opposites is this effect of, of you know, uh, uh, late capitalism. And, and even then, right, your, your play and your leisure time is, is always being co-opted and measured and quantified and optimized. So there's all these systems going on in the background of play. And when I think about play, I love to break it down to uh, a kind of attitudinal definition, right? So when I talk then about definitions, I don't want to take a Wittgensteinian, sorry, like, I don't want to be too hard with my boundaries. I want to have a more Wittgensteinian branch definition of what is it related to and, and, and what's the fuzziness of it. 
So I define play as just a mode of interacting with the world that is about navigation over configuration. That's my personal definition of play. So it's like you don't really know all the outcomes and you're having an attitude to it that is kind of exploring the unknown. And that can be not lit a literal physical exploration, but it absolutely can be. So I also hark back to maybe my favorite, uh, I guess, like artistic, social, political movement um, of, of recent decades, the Situationists, Guy Debord and uh, his kind of main text, The Society of the Spectacle, and the Situationists that came out of the 1968 Paris protests with these amazing slogans, uh, basically came up with a whole new way of interacting with their environment to reclaim and reassert their ability to, to navigate a city on their own terms, as opposed to the terms dictated to them through the lens of capitalism or through the lens of modernism and the way that it imposes its structures onto us through architecture. So that's a lot of big ideas. But the, the main thing is like they wandered around the city and said, what is the city really? The city is not just living and working. The city is vibrant and alive when you drop all your normal motivations for movement. And that was their mode of play. And maybe you could call like skateboarders the modern situationists in some ways, right? Because they're always reinterpreting a city landscape for their own playful purposes. This is what I'm interested in. The subversive nature of play and the way that play can be used even as an adult to reclaim space. So when you see adults playing, it is absolutely a bit of a weird thing, right? If they're not playing in the conventional way of video games or playing at a bar or on a beach, and if you see someone playing on the street, it's like, oh, that's weird. You don't see that very often. But it becomes its own kind of political statement, which can be used for activism, as was the case with Amani Nassim, who is a playmaker and activist in the Maldives, who uses play as a political statement to progress climate goals. So I think, you know, there's absolutely room for play because it is unusual to be used as a kind of basis for activism or optics of acti activism. That aside, the next question is, okay, this is the society we're in. It sucks, but adults don't get, you know, to get, don't get to play. Adults don't get to do anything creative without being judged on it and assessed, you know, your value is based on your effort. Uh, sorry, not on your effort, but your, your ability. And no one's ability is that high because we haven't all tried drawing. So immediately you recognize that your taste is higher than your ability and your ability is terrible. So you don't draw ever again. And we ignore the fact that, you know, it's a delight to sing, even if you sing off key, but no one wants to hear it and you can't market it. So it has no value in society. And all of these things keep happening and happening. And eventually you box yourself into only what you're good at, as opposed to being playfully exploring all of these other things of what we could do as humans. So that's my rant. I'm like, you know, what a missed opportunity. If adults embraced play at the center of what we do, I think it would be a much more freeing experience Fundamentally, the reason I want an equal society is not for equality's sake or equity's sake, although that is important, interestingly. It is more because I want to experience the opportunity to have a flourishing, meaningful life. And a flourishing, meaningful life, to me, means all the opportunity to do all of these different things that are possible. Right? I want to be able to experience all the sports and all the arts and all the capacities and and propensities of, of humans, and it's beautiful. But there are so many systems which prevent me from doing that, and there are so many systems which prevent other people from doing it. So when I talk about an equitable society, equitable for what, for what ends, it's actually for play, <laughs> arguably. Bernard Suits, I think, wrote a book called The Grasshopper, wherein he asserts that in a post-scarcity world where no one has to work, all labor is play. 
and all our activities will be done for the reason of being, which he, you know, like the, the, the act of being and the act of play really start to touch upon each other a little bit more. That's really exciting to me because that's when I feel most alive, when I get to sing and dance, when I get to, you know, climb and, um, and try all these different things. But we're not there yet. Okay, so that's my ramble on play and adults and kids. And then finally, a more pragmatic matter. So how do we as game designers get adults to play? So there's several different ways. Um, my friend Holly Cramazio has, she has amazing ability as a games curator and designer. And she noticed that when she curates a museum exhibition about games, if you put games at two different heights, one ostensibly for children and one for adults, this is positive for many reasons, including wheelchair accessibility, for example. But it's also wonderful because secretly, she told me, it's not to get the kids to play. It's to get the adults to play. It's, it's like you're demonstrating that there is a station for adults. And so the adults feel like they're more justified in their playing of the game in this museum gallery setting. So these kind of nudges from a design perspective can be used to get people to feel more comfortable with play. And then, you know, you can see that in a broader societal level of what kind of things could we do in society to make it more playful. I think anything which pushes against the austere modernity uh, of like the way that the world is built towards capital, right? Anything which breaks the pattern of this is work and this is your life, any moment, which, you know, so before flash mobs were uh, co-opted by corporates as viral advertising, you know, the, the beauty of, of seeing a flash mob for the very first time must have been pretty amazing, right? And that being a community driven thing, just as a random example that came to my head, doesn't have to be flash mobs. Um, you know, I think things like that, uh, I want to see more of, and we can engineer them, we can create them, we can create platforms and opportunities for that play. I think once people do participate creatively in games that they generally have a good time and they, they learn something new about themselves. It's just whether, how do you draw people in and get them to challenge their own expectations about giving themselves permission to be a part of it? Totally. Yeah. I think um, there are probably a lot of people listening, or I hope there are a lot of people listening who engage in play regularly and who, after listening to this podcast episode, may think about playing or being played or implementing play in new and creative ways to um, continue to try and make the changes that they're trying to make? Yeah, so it's kind of a good segue because what I was kind of wondering was how we can motivate people, how can we engage people in play, really what you were just touching on. Because, yeah, I mean... <laughs> When when I think about having a nice evening together with um, my partner and our housemate, um, I'm thinking about playing a game, but often it's not really that touching for them. <laughs> and and especially if it's about like a specific topic, I find that yeah, I find that quite challenging to bring to the table and and, and get people motivated. Like yeah, let's talk about climate change and, and play. You know, it's like oh. Well, um, well, firstly, that's probably not the best way to frame it. But, but uh, yeah, I was just wondering whether you have, have um, yeah, any advice or tips and, and how engage people in play um, and how, I guess we, we already talked about how we can use play to um, instigate better, better conversations about climate change. But um, I think really the interesting bit for me is just how you get them to play in the first place so you can have those really meaningful conversations. 
Yeah, totally. You can look at it top down and bottom up as well. Um, you can think about the conditions of a society <laughs> and how playful it is. And that, that is a real thing, right? I wonder sometimes, like I feel like there's probably a study that I should be able to reference about um, uh, things like median or, or mean income versus time spent playing and you know notions of play and work and different socioeconomic statuses, but I don't have that information at hand. So I don't know why I bring it up. Let me answer this question more personally then, right? Which is, we are individuals with a sphere of influence. We have friends and we're excited to hang out with those friends and have meaningful connections and relationships with those people. And we have an opportunity, an agency, if you will, to like shift some of their ideas and their thinking and their values and their practices in the same way that they have the same opportunity for us. And that's you know, loosely speaking, the world. That's like a, a series of networks and connections and relationships. And so the question on a personal level is, how do I get my friends to be more playful? Or how do I start having these conversations through a more open and playful way? The main thing becomes like getting people to feel safe and the role, the, the really importance of trust in these relationships and having the ability to actually push against that trust once you've built it up. So if for some reason, the thing that I come back to is evangelism within a Christian context. <laughs> so this is a bit of a leap. But when I think about, you know, uh, churches and in the best, best case scenario, the way that they can care for members of the church, as well as people who are not part of the church. Again, in the best case scenario, we hope that church members will love people and show that love in different ways. But what's fascinating is like, if you want to evangelize, you want to tell someone about a truth that you believe that they don't believe, there's kind of two conditions for it, right? The first is that eventually you do have to get to the brass tacks of what you want to say, the content of what you want them to believe. But they're not going to be receptive to that in any mean or form unless there is trust. And that trust has to be built out of a genuine care and love for another person, potentially a person that you'd never met. This is also why I think like, you know, different types of evangelism or activism do different things, right? So street preachers, for example, don't show love in the traditional sense or care in the traditional sense. And people hear the message, but do they actually hear the message, right? So maybe they're not effective in that sense. Then you question like, is efficacy the goal or is it just the, the anyway, that aside. And in the same way, you, you know, you have different communications around climate change, things that are designed just to talk about what the issue is and, pe and, and get people to know the information because there's a lot of nescience and lack of information. And then things that are designed more to shift people's behaviors. And that requires a certain level of trust as well, so that it's not just pure nudging and psychological manipulation. So once you have trust with a group of friends, the next thing is, on what, on what basis is that trust built? On what foundations is it built? If it's built on shared values, then you can start to play with format, right? You start to say, oh, I share these values, therefore let me introduce a new format of playfulness. Maybe that's what happened with your group where you said, I really want to talk about climate change. I don't necessarily play games, but I'm willing to change the format. Or you don't share values, but you share experiences. So you say, yeah, I'd love to go and hang out in the pub, right? And you think about what that means that you have that shared place and, and space and whether you normally within that space talk about things. Is that space specifically for that things? In which case, maybe you need to create a new space. So it's real basic things of that, but it always comes down to what are the shared things and how do you push the trust a little bit so that you get beyond what exists? And it's uncomfortable to do at first, 
in the same way that it's uncomfortable, like if you're, you're at a club and no one's dancing and you're like, how do you get people to dance? But have faith that the dancing is going to be great. Have faith that your friends will want to dance and they're also just a little bit like, you know, it's feeling the same way. They're not sure whether it's going to be good or not. And if you can get, I don't know if you've watched the film 12 Angry Men. It's a, it's a court drama, really great classic film, uh, wherein one juror convinces the other 11 jurors uh, to vote not guilty in a court case uh, when ev- everyone's against him and he manages to slowly persuade and convince. And there's multiple things that you can learn from this film, but one of them is definitely uh, you need an ally. You need one person to come with you, right? Because with that one person who's with you, you can already have a great moment with that one person and you can start to influence people much more easily. So within your friend group, find the one person that you think is most likely to be up for something interesting and then help together. You can, you can start to influence your other friend groups as well. And then it just grows and grows and grows. So when I say it grows and grows and grows, that's not a rhetorical, uh, sorry, that's not a theoretical thing. That's like in my communities, you know, we were having days where we would just go to the park just to play. Uh, which is amazing and kind of like, you know, amazing that you don't just go to the park for a picnic, but you specifically go to the park to play games. And that wasn't game designers. That was just like all sorts of different people. Um, and now we see the availability of things like board games and commercial uh, things that, you know, people are excited to go to like escape rooms. And those are also ways to just like shift the window of acceptability and say, here's an alternative that might be interesting to do. But then when you say leverage the play to talk about meaningful things, I mean, it doesn't have to be play at that point, but like if you wanted it to be play, yeah, you start having to push on the trust. I think that it's good to push on trust. I think it's good for us to use the connections that we have and challenge the people using the trust that we have invested in, if that makes sense. So here, my cohort uh, at INSEAD is incredibly intelligent and well-read and uh, you know, they're in so many different fields of study one of the things that I therefore gain out of it is an increased sphere of influence. And I'm aware that that's strategically a really great thing, right? Here are all these people that are going to become heads of companies or consultants uh, uh, that are changing the world in their own way. So now I have an opportunity to shift their window. I can only do that by getting trust and then pushing that trust and see if I can change their mind on topic. So already we're having massive conversations about what it means to be anti-capitalist at a business school. That's great. You know, like that's what a, what a cool thing to be able to do. So yeah, uh, sorry, don't mean to sound patronizing at all, but uh, I guess that's my answer on the ground level thing. Uh, build trust with your friends and then push that trust to change their minds. And find an ally. That's sort of my takeaway as well. Yeah, sorry. Absolutely. Find an ally. <laughs> um, Harry, I'm really glad that you uh, brought up trust because that is something which has been a bit of a thread throughout this whole podcast series, actually. And it flows very well into our next question, which I will throw to Zoe for. So we've, we've talked about like trust and the messenger and how, how we engage in, in conversations about climate or any sort of sticky issue, particularly around equity. What role, um, does play have in building trust between people or communities, especially those with like differing worldviews or priorities or, you know, stakes? Because that's when, when it comes down to this, how we're talking about play here is how, how we can get to a more equitable society. And if, if play is going to be one of the ways that we reimagine how we engage with the world and with each other, then um, 
what role does that have, particularly when when you get into a, a an equity focus or a, a justice focus? Yeah, I, I, it's such a good question because I think the, the thing that stood out to me there is what happens when the communities are quite different, mm. right? And and how do you get people with very different experiences and ideas and values to share the same reality and and that to me is kind of the fundamental question of how do we play well with each mm-hmm. other right we may all be playing and up for play but we might be playing different games some people are playing to increase their wealth and some people are playing to increase their influence and some people are playing for all sorts of reasons and somehow we're in this game together of life and it all pans out and shakes out but you know there is also not agreement there's great conflict over these things and these conflicts spiral out into geopolitical messes and all sorts of things. So yeah, it, it also brings to mind the notion broadly of what happens when two very different people or two very different communities have to solve an issue of conflict and whether play should be the basis by which they unite. There's a lot of research to show that the moment of greatest empathy with people is when you unite against the other. <laughs> it's very unfortunate that's how we're built in some ways. Um, you know, two groups at a park will, Stanford prison style, segregate their identities and then go against each other until they know about the third group and then they can band together and, and solve the problem against the third group. Play is not always positive, right? Play has... Just as much as play can make change for good, play can make change for bad. In some ways, you could think of torture as a form of play, right? It's an attitude that, yeah, it's, I don't want to be someone who thinks that play is is just positive, basically. Mm. So it's a very, very good question of how do we not instrumentalize, but like think about the opportunities for play to be healing and transformative in a positive way for these communities and individuals who might be against each other. And... I guess it is. it comes down to the question of creating those shared spaces and shared rules of engagement. So that within game design, there's an old kind of contentious idea called the magic circle, which is that if you're all playing the same game, implicitly, you are all sharing a reality of the rules of the game. And if someone breaks the rules of the game, they're breaking the magic circle. So if you and I and everyone here um, plays tag in a playground, there are some explicit rules and there's some implicit rules. Explicit rules, um, some of them are like, you can, you know, you, you get tagged, then you're it, and then you have to chase another person. That's the rules of the game. Implicitly, uh, don't stab anyone with a knife. <laughs> playing tag. Just taking it right. slightly up a notch there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just this is like, a really intense game of tag. Very intense game of tag. And here's the thing, like, if you wanted to play tag with a group of people who all use knives and we're all okay with stabbing, then you're going to create a different magic circle mm. with those people. And that's totally fine. But if you're with your friends and then someone pulls out a knife and stabs you, you're like, this was not part of the agreement. This is, <laughs> you have broken the magic circle and you are no longer playing mm. fundamentally. The person stabbed you might still be playing their own game, but you are definitely not playing. You are dying. So, so this is where I get into the real weeds of the like ludology and, and formal study of like, oh, well, what does it mean for some countries to be more, have more at stake in the climate conversation than others? Are some countries able to treat geopolitics more as a game than others? 
And other, for others, it's survival, mm. you know, where like literally lives are on the line. And for others, it's just like, oh, some capital is lost, you know, and, and the value systems are so different that you can't reconcile that connection. Is play even the appropriate word for what's going on mm. here? So sorry for not an easy answer, but certainly I think about this question a lot. Yeah. No, I, I think that was um, an amazing answer and really considered because that's that's really the grit is the wrong word, the core, the core of it. And mm-hmm. especially like um, with like playing convergence, you get a choice. But in life, we don't actually always have a choice. And so the magic circle that we all live in isn't, isn't always that magic. And I, I think holding holding space to discuss and reflect on that is is really important because like play is amazing. You're talking to someone who plays imaginary hide and seek. It's so good. Um, also you can pick your own size, um, which is delightful. <laughs> yeah. And you like pick common places that you've all been and then you're like, so I'm in, you know, I'm in this venue in this room and I'm the size of a pencil. Where am I? Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> but like coming back to, you know, like my, you know, a cause very, very close to my heart when you're you're navigating, um, let's go go back to heat waves um and people, you know, people with disabilities in a in a different areas you're deprioritized and like that's not fair in the magic circle um and so I really loved your your answer of questioning where when and how play can be can be productive and that in late stage capitalism we are living in a magic for listeners I put that in quotation marks a magic circle where some are playing with knives yeah yeah it's really <laughs> playing tag it's, with knives rather it's so it is the question that i really want to get to in a lot of my uh everyday life right how what mechanism do i use to practice my values best so I don't want to put play as the value, even though I think playfulness is the wonderful value. I don't think it's necessarily the terminal value. Mm. I think it's instrumental in some ways. So, you know, for all that I say, I, I don't want to instrumentalize play. A lot of the time I end up kind of doing exactly that. But, you know, that's because I want to be a bit tactical, a little bit strategic. Not saying that everyone has to be, but that's because I've been given the opportunity and because I've been blessed with a lot of privilege and because I have um, resources at my disposal this is how I've chosen to use them. So it gets into like a real, you know, <laughs> existential philosophical thing of how do you want to live your life? It's not just a, a think about your values and practice them. It can also be a change your values by practicing alternatives. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to know why you're doing what you're doing and believe in what you're doing. Otherwise, I think you will experience either a lot of dissonance that leads to um, inauthenticity mm. uh, or you will, uh, I guess, like shift far away from your original values. Uh, and that could be for better or for worse, depending on which way you shift and what you ultimately think is, is better. You know, I'm trying to not make a value judgment on that shift, but it, it happens a lot, right? That, that people shift one way or the other. Mm. It's a problem of being like so descriptive and <laughs> in the analysis a lot of the time. So like part of me wants to be super moralistic and, and prescriptive and say this is right and this is wrong, but 
I know that that's not particularly helpful. Yeah, the the binaries that we rely on so much are quite constricting. I've um, been trying to embrace the the plurality of truth. Yes, all of my friends listening in, it's still here. But embracing <laughs> the plurality of truth, which sounds utterly ridiculous, but to just be in the messiness and that that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay sometimes. It doesn't, things don't need to be, I mean, this is really, I'm really flipping what I just said on this head before, but sometimes things can just be and that's okay. And um, us as individuals having that moral coding in our brain sometimes isn't isn't necessary or helpful to understanding the world or ourselves or what to do next. It reminds me of a concept in philosophy called dialethia, um, which is present in some uh, Eastern philosophical modes mm-hmm. of thinking, I guess we call them. Uh, dialethia is that that a, a truth and its contrapositive or its opposite can both be true mm. at the same time, which within Western philosophy you would say that the system explodes. <laughs> it's, it's not it's not possible. Like that, that's axiomatically impossible. Um, so I love dialethia. Then, you know, the response obviously would be like, yes, that's true that it's impossible. And also it is possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, of all the spaces, um, I've found a lot of value in transgender politics in terms of making sense of climate discussion as well, particularly in talking about fluidity and, it's a real gatekeeping circle you get into if you're like, oh, we're really fluid, but there's rules about fluidity. But if you're too, you know, like you've got to find a point where it's just like actually fluidity means creating actually a new group altogether that doesn't have that aim. Yeah, it's, um, I, I, I go to gender a lot as, as my kind of example and provocation around things like the volitionality is that a word? We'll <laughs> um, allow it. Susie I think it's just really good. <laughs> We're not being prescriptive this year. The volition of, of uh, belief, right? Like how much of what we believe and who we are is actually up to us versus due to any other number of factors. And then you get even really, you know, in the weeds of, of Calvinism or predestination and things. But what I find very reassuring is that these spaces, whether uh, ones that are um, for trans people to find community or find psychologically safe areas are, that still work through the mess of being human and making mistakes and, you know, having all these politics involved still produce so much value for people and still produce change that I would consider really wonderful in this world. So whenever I get too mired in it, I like to step back and think about like, yeah, this is, this is all part of the process and it's messy and imperfect because humans are messy and imperfect. Um, and then being able to, as you have, like, draw from lots and lots of different communities and pull it together, because at the end of the day, these disciplines are only as useful as their constructs. <laughs> like, you know, it's not as if there's a real world wall between these disciplines or fields. So this is why I sometimes call myself an anti-disciplinary artist and why I think people who are able to poach and go across the, the artificial walls are, are going to be really valuable um, over the next few decades. Yeah. Also, also, sorry, just thinking about like when we think of environmental justice and its intersection with gender justice and disability justice and everything, it's like, it is a very heartening thing to me, actually, 
that all these things are so intimately connected um, because it enables coalition building and it enables allyship and it enables for me the, the real. <laughs> I'm just like yes, raise the roof. <laughs> no, it's like yeah, wonderful. Um, <laughs> hands in the air, full body. Praise the Lord. And it's, you know, <laughs> I think that means <laughs> like the, the real um, pragmatic outcome, right? That like we have to find our allies, that we have to find our people because our theory of change is not going to be individualistic. Our theory of change cannot just be, I'm going to change the world. That's impossible. We all know it's impossible. We, 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 that's the whole point of this, you know, thing. So yeah, have a theory of change, have, have a, a group of people that you're excited to, to do things with. And then, uh, oh, Lauren Rickards from RMIT. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, she's great. And <laughs> <laughs> no, I like, I like the verbal support. You know, she talks about the, the global being actually quite accessible nowadays. You know, we don't have to go off the chain of command. We can connect directly. We can do direct activism and direct action and collective action. And that stuff really matters. In this book, Joshua, Joshua Clover, in his book, um, Strike, Riot, Strike, talks about the fact that like all these major political justice movements happened because of activism that shook up the status quo in a meaningful way, right? That actually disturbed people who were comfortable with the system to the point where change had to happen. Goes back to, this is, this is like the recap answer, right? It goes back to the idea of like, oh, we need to shake up whether it be through play, through spectacle, through um, political action, uh, we need to shake people up and, and displace the apathy and displace the, the status quo, uh, which is also, yeah, what I'm excited to do in every domain, whether it be through an MBA or um, through games. And I'm very excited that you are, uh, that we are all on this journey together. Absolutely. And I think that is a fantastic sentiment to bring this conversation to a wrap on. And I think, Harry, just thinking back to how you define play as uh, a mode of interaction, thank you for playing with us today with this episode. I personally feel absolutely privileged to have been part of this uh, conversation with you and feel changed myself. Uh, I'm speaking for myself, but I, I reckon there'll be a lot of people listening and people in this group I can see nodding who feel changed uh, through this experience. Um, and it was uh, thoroughly enjoyable. And I hope it's it's very much as well the start of a lot of new connections between people within our community and with yourself as well. And I hope uh, it gets people excited to go out and play Convergence and some of the other games that you've been involved in designing as well. So just before we let you go, if people want to learn more about you, learn a bit more about Play Reactive and some of the games that might be coming out and some of the games that you've created, how, how would people go about finding that information? Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's been such a pleasure and I'm so excited. If you want to find out more about me and my work, uh, my website is www. And in the critical moment, the critical. Oh, did you miss? Did I? Did I miss Sorry, Harry, we just lost you there for about ten seconds. That's really funny. When you were starting the URL, we got <laughs> www dot silence. <laughs> I thought it was like a joke or something. <laughs> oh man, that's really funny. Okay, so, well, I'm sure you can edit this however you like. I no, will leave it in. <laughs> If you'd like to find out more about me and my work, you can visit my website at www. 
Did you mute yourself again? <laughs> no, that's a joke. That <laughs> now we got to leave it in. <laughs> okay, yeah. So the website is www.hellothisismywebsite.com. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a joke. That is the actual URL. <laughs> I love it. No more jokes. That is Sorry. the website. Go visit it. Check it out. Learn more about Harry and his work. And I also want to quickly make a, a plug to uh, Seed Network, um, part of uh, yeah the Australian Youth Climate Council, I think. Um, and yeah, the great work that they're doing. Go and donate to their campaigns and to the to their work. Um, yeah, just to all your listeners, I think it'll be up your alley. Big shout out to Seed and the AYCC. We'll 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 put a link to to Seed as well in the show notes. Oh, awesome! Um, Great, yeah. But yeah, that, that's that's a wrap. This podcast has been created and produced by Tim, Emily, Fani, Ewan, Zoe, and Rosie, with support from the Climactic Collective. This podcast has been made for educational purposes only, and any advice and information presented is general in nature and does not consider your specific circumstances. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed by individuals do not reflect the views of a Climactic Collective. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating as it helps others find us. If you're looking for more podcasts on similar topics, make sure to visit the Climactic Collective website, climactic.com.au. Thanks for listening. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.